Bookworm Games, episode 48, Under the Same Blue Sky. We move from the depths to the heights this time, through some of the very best segments of Xenogears, game and story. From the quarantined laboratory in the Lost City, we begin by cutting cinematically back to Fay in the Yggdrasil infirmary. It's dark. He's lying still either talking in his sleep, or it's that we're privy to his dreams. Being bound to the earth is a curse to the speaker, reminiscent of Genesis 3 again, dust, dust, also of earthbound, where the story of the apple of enlightenment is treated a little more lightheartedly. And in language which sounds oddly like what we hear from the Solarians, including what Ellie just said in reactivating the controls, O vessel for a new soul created to remove that yoke. As the images come up to accompany this ancient dialogue, Faye's heart beats audibly. It's the final chamber of Ziboim again, this time Faye in a lab coat on the far side of the glass door, Ellie in the airlock hallway, expiring, and the green-haired girl, our child, in the nanomachine pod. Soldiers pour in, their commander unseen. Faye's avatar cries out. Ellie's is defiant. And then we're fading back and forth between the darkened infirmary and the red-tinted hall, the present and the past, and wind up in that place where the cross pendant with its red gem glints audibly swinging pendulum-like above Faye in his lab coat, beating on the glass, and the red-haired kid who creeps behind him, laughing. See ya! And when the nurse comes in to check on him, Faye is gone. Meanwhile, your party in the same room in the present chases after the fleeing elements and the Inquisitor, Stein, who has taken the girl from her long solitude. You catch up to them on that dra dramatic bridge above the empty cityscape, so that Stein's cohort is at the far end of the bridge, where it connects to the dig site. Your group is on the near side, the threshold of the labyrinth, perfectly poised for the arrival of someone right in the midst. His voice comes in, repeatedly demanding, Give it back, almost sing-song. And then the red gear arrives, hovering level with the bridge, and his pilot, the red-haired demon of Elru, of Ramses' nightmares, lifter of the Yggdrasil, though that led straight to the discovery of a superior model, destroyer of Lahan, an imp in Faye's unconscious mind. He appears in a cascade of blue light, visually echoing both the nanomachine pod and Faye's own chi attacks. He laughs, but keeps demanding the girl and keeps calling her it, saying it's a used-up toy to them, but it belongs to him. Names do not matter, he says, once Billy, as well as Stein, has asked who he is. And that is obviously not true either, for his name, id, is highly significant. The translation for the pronoun it in German, the personification of the unconscious drives in Freudian psychology. Finally, the red-haired man has a name, Id, and as soon as he's named, we must confront him. Whereas before his power has been irresistible, 
This fight is, if anything, more manageable than the one against the two elements. Though it does hit hard and sometimes attacks more than once per turn, it's as if, now that he's contained by the concept, the name, however mysterious, represented as id, he's given you the means to grapple with him and survive. It still isn't clear why he turns up to fight your party instead of wresting the green-haired girl from her captors, but perhaps he figured you'd be the better plaything, or perhaps he worries about her safety as long as she's held hostage. Though unlike Graf, Id has no qualms about dealing damage to Ellie, he does break the fight off like Graf, or like Wiseman. This one against Id ends indecisively. Wise man himself arrives, in a gear Ellie seems to recognize. Satan identifies his voice. He seizes Id to allow your party, but also Stein, to get away. Id mocks him as arriving early, as if he expected him to intervene, but not yet. And he implies that wise man has a, so a soft spot for that woman. Is it Ellie? Or else is it He's acting on the orders of that woman, Miang. Either way, his red aura of ether power comes up, loosening the gear's hold, and makes Wise Man his toy for the day. The sound of their battle rages behind while your party goes off after Stein, but too late. Fleeing to Krellian in the fishbowl airship, which hurdles off, he's gone. Satan explains a bit about the implications of the nanotechnology and why the girl is special, in the course of which we finally learn, by the way, that demi-humans like Rico and Hammer are the result of Solaris's botched DNA engineering. The deep-sea girl, by contrast, is an advanced work of art, and according to Stein's language about the restoration, actually he said salvation, of humanity, she could hold information about human reconstruction, a scientific boon, an ethical quandary. Aboard the ship, you all look all over for Faye, only to find him in the gear dock, with no idea how he got there or what he was doing in Veltal, gushing steam behind him. This is the clearest possible hint to the player about the identity of Id, and yet, Satan does not explain it for us just yet, because the Alkanshell boss fight is looming. For some reason, Stein has been deployed in the mobile weapon, even though the fishbowl ship is long gone, and his body, we see during his interview with Graf, has been changed from the serene, sleek bishop to a rigid, red, skull-bearing form. He claims it is a more powerful one, fit to destroy your party, where Ramses, the elements, Graf himself, and even Id now have failed, a body given him by Krillion. But Graf, calling that power fake, that awakening fake, tempts him with the same hypnotic procedure we saw before in the desert, the same archaic words of power. He can't be doing this to unlock Faye's latent potential this time, that seems to be well on its way, but rather seems to want to stir up your other party members now by pitting them against a stronger foe. In the course of the battle, 
It seems at first he's overplayed his hand. Your party's attacks are all nullified. Stein gloats, tells the true story of his past with Jesse, how he hated him for being loved by Raquel, disdaining the command of Gebler, which Stein also coveted, and finally the big reveal comes, a one-two punch. He was behind the Vel's attack that killed Billy's mother, staging the rescue of the orphans, and the Wells themselves were people chosen by the ethos and converted by Krellian into that deformed kind. The language of election and conversion is palpably bitter here. But breaking through the stilted villain monologue comes Jesse himself, first as a voice undercutting the key falsehood in Stein's telling that Raquel could ever have loved the narcissistic monster, and then we see Jesse's strange little gear, a bunt line, Satan explains, an ether gun whose pilot provides the kamikaze bullet. Jesse's language is refreshingly straightforward and gruff. But faith in God aren't things which are given to you from others, right? They are things you have to discover within yourself and by yourself, things that cannot be put into words, things that cannot be expressed. Isn't that what God is all about? Question not thy God, for thy God doth not respond. He seems to be quoting from the ethos' own teachings at the end there. The closest analog I'm able to find is in Matthew 4, 7, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, itself referencing Exodus 17, 2 and Deuteronomy 6, 16. Jesse's name goes back to the biblical father of David, the ancestor and complex prototype of the Messiah. This Jesse convinces his son that what he did cleansing wells by his skill with guns has been for the best, the only respite from the torture of their change being death, and that he has God within him after all. Satan's fruitless protestations do not get through until too late, for Billy fires the bunt line, breaking through Stein's barrier. The rest of the boss battle is routine. Despite his huge gear, he uses seal spells and that mass HP haver and deals some final damage upon exploding into shrapnel. The send-off is a fitting one, Billy decides, and Jesse appears, alive after all, and agrees. He improved Satan's design of the gun, but he's still sore after the ordeal. The scene closes with a lingering question about hell as a metaphysical reality, or as a curse proper to send off such a hateful criminal as Stein, the same might be asked of heaven, where Raquel is said to be. And with Prim speaking her first words in years, Pa-pa, though she won't say Billy yet. There's some further exposition at this point as to what Jesse's been up to all these years. It's interesting to note also the variation here on the mysteries which have occupied us so far about the relationship between parents and children. This time the mystery is not of the parents as seen from the perspective of the child, but of the child from the standpoint of the parent. It's raised with Ellie and the green-haired girl and Faye in his lab coat. And then with Prim's silence finally breaking though she won't say Billy's name. And now again, with Satan's remark, meant to be comforting to Billy, that 
Satan's own daughter, Midori, does not call his name. We'll just file that one away for now. Meanwhile, the mysteries of Solaris's activity and much of the discussions among the orbs of the Gazelle ministry are brought into the light for us by Jesse's story in the gunroom. Their M-plan, short for Malak, or angelic messenger. This is what Krellian has been doing, making wells from the ethos's refugees. Though further secrets were placed by another scientist into a gear along with his daughter, who thus escaped from Solaris. That is who Jesse has been looking for on the surface, only to learn now that they are in Shevat. The Shevat agent rescued from the basement cell in the Ethos headquarters corroborates the story and gives names to these new players, Maria and Nikolai, her father. They also know how to contact that hidden land, though its ancient connection with Babel Tower where the comm equipment may still function. It remains a mystery. Does it still work? The mission Bart has been on all along to recapture Ave, his kingdom, thus has to take a back seat once again to Faye and Ellie's journeys of self-discovery, and now to Billy's rocky pilgrimage of faith, all of which converge on Shevat. There's a short debrief between Krellion and the Gazelle Orbs, wherein they dismiss his interest in the nanomachine colony and implore his haste with the M-plan, while he reminds them of their debt to him for having placed them in the data of the machine when they allowed their bodies to perish. Though admitting they were foolish to betray their mother, and all but acknowledging their subordination to Krellion for reviving them as the soul 9000, the sun, an ironic title, in the dark room. The Gazelle ministers continue to urge him on, perhaps missing the point of his warning to bethink them of their past mistakes. For a parting shot, Krellion delivers one of the great lines in the game. What may be an eternity to man is but a moment to a god. I have no need for hesitation. The linking of man and a god here, and braiding of eternity and the moment, is more reminiscent of Kierkegaard or Blake even than of Plato or the Scholastics. And the final statement is one of a romantic surfeit of confidence, more than the classical temperance and humility his circlet or headband might make us think of. More than ever, we are left to wonder what Krellion is playing at, enjoying the latter upon the elders while embodying the former so forcefully. Back aboard the Yggdrasil, you'd do well to take Sigurd's advice and upgrade your gears again before heading to Babel Tower. If you've picked up an ether doubler or two by now and form a party of Billy, Ellie, and Faye, you'll be plenty overpowered to climb the impossible structure. What still takes at least an hour in-game navigating this massive dungeon, we may pass over with relative conciseness here. There's a lot of memorable gameplay, exploring the grand chambers and eerie corridors, and an unprecedented amount of this is vertical, 
jumping, swinging, splashing down, and having to do it all again if your aiming or your timing is off. It can be frustrating, but it seems like the random encounters decrease, fall off steeply after a while. These enemies are all weak against ether attacks. So Billy's square gun attack, phase chi, and especially Ellie's magic will work wonders to speed up these fights. Taken together, the new dimensions of vertical exploration and ethereal combat in Gears reflect beautifully the opening out of the story at this point. We're finally on the point of piecing together most of the tantalizing and frankly confusing bits and pieces of the story of Xenogears thus far to amass a coherent whole from these sparkling fragments, just as the player is feeling new mastery with Faye back in the party and his allies firing on all cylinders. Or, let it be said, we're feeling a certain amount of frustration if those precise jumps are still proving troublesome after the nth attempt at reaching that one platform with the treasure chest on it. The first room you come to with operational computers is surprising, not just because they're still working, but because the consoles all seem to be laid out on their side. What could that be about? Pushing and maybe stepping on a few buttons here summons a tram car from somewhere underwater, and riding it you hurtle aloft, the walls rattling, blasting through obstacles, shaking the debris of some ancient catastrophe loose, and finally emerging on the outside of the column. Here your progress is arrested by an ambush, shots fired from Ramses's battleship, and the commander himself rushing at you, Miang in tow, for what has to be one of the most underwhelming boss fights of the entire game. They retreat, hoping for cover fire, but their own ship comes under the shadow of Shivat itself, and sustains heavy damage from its lancing light, vertical, combining the two threads of energy and direction we've been observing. Above the balcony where the duel took place, the huge round disc, which proves to be a mirror, it can be controlled from the sideways computer banks you find in the next rooms, and with it the communications with Shevat are back up, though no one actually responds. The party keeps climbing, on gear and on foot, winding through passageways, over a strangely map-like terrain plastered to the back wall. Opened the sky. And finally we come to the top, where the city used to rest at anchor. There, the huge gear, shaped like calamity from Old Man Baal's tavern beneath the desert, piloted by a fierce girl straight out of an anime or manga. Obviously, these are the ones Jesse's been looking for preparing to defend Shivat from your party's incursion, only to be called off by the voice of Queen Zephyr herself inviting you up after a few rounds. The aerial city hovers in position directly above the tower, another symbolic representation of that promised coherence so mysteriously severed in the past. While the Nissan hymn last heard during Ellie's sack self-sacrifice above Kislev plays auspiciously.
it seems, a similar attempt at a purge as the one in Kislev is imminent. The orbs commiserate. Useless. They allowed contact with Shevat. There is an anima relic in Shevat. We can't afford to have them align before preparations are complete. It's meaningless if it is not compatible with our type. You want to bury all of Shavat? What of the animus? There are others. We must respond severely so this doesn't happen again. What about the Shavat gate? As long as it is there, we can't get in. Easy. We just use Akzen's gravity cannon to compensate for the time-space warp. Akzen? Is it operational? Re-education is complete. It is ready. The airborne squad is already assembled. Any side effects? The regulated 71st Airborne should have no problems. Well then, I look forward to this. Saibzane and Octane, 17 and 18, and their relationship to Balthazar get clarified in short order. If Bart is in your party, he and Maria have a cute exchange where the prince apologizes quicker than he's done at any point so far for calling her squirt and calling her grandfather a crazy old coot. If you follow her to the gear dock, a more moving exposition unfurls the story of her father's capture and her escape from Solaris. She is forgetting him, but he lives on in his legacy, her protector, Saibzane. Leaving her to brood in the beautiful Gathering Stars theme, intimating the sentimental conflict to come, your party ascends the elevator to the main city then, following the queen's summons. And here, my most patient exegesis is going to founder, for practically everything that the people of Shevat have to say is worth deliberating and discoursing upon at length. It's a kind of heaven, no doubt about it, of learning and tranquility, shimmering with light and music on the floating islands of the old city above the clouds. For all its painful past and pathos of loneliness, there are stirrings of hope here. Clear parallels within the game could be drawn to the cities and towns you've seen so far, to the unique spirit of the Thames and the peace of Lahan, the religious atmosphere of Nissan and the advanced technology of Kislev, they all have their transcendence here and their representatives. The lost city of Ziboim and the militaristic hegemony of Solaris are other clear contrasts. Visually, the old city of Afel Aura looks like a kind of recapitulation of the kingdom of zeal from Chrono Trigger. And the mystic atmosphere is certainly a close relative, presided over by that music, as well as by the sages we hear about as we begin to explore. One of them had a hidden room, which it should become your goal to find before proceeding on to the palace. And this scavenger hunt gives a tangible purpose to the basic RPG activities of exploring every corner and talking to everyone at least once. In the course of it, you'll need three keys, as a couple of hints suggest. First is the message on the stepping stone from Wise Man. The one who attains the dawn, the dusk, and the darkness shall climb the path to heaven. 
and the snatch of poetry spoken by the young choo-choo, tucked atop a lamp in their bustling shop. The angel stood watch as the night ended, twilight nodded off in the arms of a lost child from five hundred years ago, and the sea serpent swallowed the dark. A wise gramps taught me that a long, long time ago. Don't know what it is, though. Maybe a spell. Yes, maybe it is. That room and this side quest go a decent way toward redeeming the choo-choo's inclusion in the game. The nostalgia that hits the player in Shavat, recovering the three timely stones from their hiding places and piecing together the story, which is the legendary backdrop of the game, both in its grand mythic outlines and in the intensely personal recollections which give it texture. All this almost makes these adorable little creatures make sense. Their innocence becomes proverbial, but still not quite human, perhaps. The unnamed child killed in the war those centuries ago, yet preserved somehow in living memory, as close and subtle as the twilight itself, would have fulfilled that role far better. And Maria's character arc. Just as mature experience is beautifully portrayed in the memories of the old woman, near the fishing well, treasuring their loves and pitying the powerful of the world. And just as that impression of immense time and art comes to the fore again, as with the music box, in the angel statue guarding the gates of this Eden in exile. The setting is the perfect one to meditate on all this. The bar where the lights come on. Deep Sea Brothers, with its birds and music box and its philosopher bartender delivering lyrical gems. Or the basement with its ragtag band of rebels looking on your party as fellow heroes or even sidekicks. Or scrounging for booze in the cupboards. The minuscule gardens and aquariums sustaining this ancient resistance in body as memories do for the soul. That ruined home where Maria meets up party again to reinforce the right way forward, and the wise man's study, the hidden room where you can find not only the totemic choo-choo idol, regrettably, but also the explanation, such as it is, for what your choo-choo is doing down on the surface, and thus what her people are doing in the game along with a suite of powerful items to further boost your party's ability to surmount the pettiness of combat, given all the rest that this game has to offer. The tension between story and gameplay, ultimately, has to be held in balance, though. The dynamic force of the narrative resolutions we get in Shavat, I think, is only as impressive as it is because of everything we've gone through to reach that point. A game which was only walking around, exploring, and talking to people, perhaps, would be as much of a letdown as a game which never started pulling together the disparate threads and themes of its ambitious tale. A similar hubris creeps into the attempt to gloss all this, I feel. And so, 
let us get a move on. Pick up your reward from the choo-choo merchant if you happen to have won the three badges of the true gamer. Catch your fish with the spiderweb from way back in Lahan. Though if you missed it, or if it breaks, the old woman on the ledge will sell you more. Stiffen your resolve, looking upon the rocking horse by its bombed-out balcony, and then head on to the palace. More revelations await here, filling in the events of the past half a millennium or so, and putting Yui and Midori, as well as wise men, back on screen, evidently safe and sound from their various dangers. Down in the prison area, its technology disused but not defunct, you can hear about Sophia's death from another angle. The woman down there recognizes Ellie's resemblance to Sophia and hints at the betrayal that led to Shevat's downfall, the counterpart to that which Krellion flung in the data face of the gazelle minister. And there is the suggestion in the execution chamber, as in the sky parklands, that history could repeat itself. The courtiers and librarians elsewhere about the palace divulge more of the details of the war. The one going on now and that which was 500 years ago. How the goal of Solaris now is to bring about a human type capable of aligning with the anima relics, presumably the animus we heard about. How the end of the previous war came unexpectedly with the assault of Diabolos, and was only held back by the Omnigirs of Rani Fatima, Queen Zephyr, and a few other brave young ones whose likeness we might guess at. The queen herself still has the likeness of youth, though she is 522 years old. This ageless longevity, her atonement for that terrible tragedy. Because of one man. As if their heroism against Solaris and Diabolos alike did not expiate it but she prefers to discontinue the discussion of the past, at last, without naming who that one man was. Wise man, it emerges, has orchestrated your party's coming on her orders to help Shavat in their struggle for the freedom of the land dwellers from Solaris. Of course, we know now that this is within the context of some much greater plans and titanic struggles. But Queen Zephyr prefers to act as though you can still discern what is right on the merits of the immediate conflict against the tyrant Solaris without worrying too much about what Shavat did in the past. Or at least, that should not be her place to explain it to you, allowing you to make up your own mind. Bart supplies some of this logic if he is in your party at this point, while the other characters give rise to other arguments, other shades of complexity. Ellie, naturally, faces the same dilemma of loyalty to friends and family. You can see what this means to the queen, looking at an old picture in her room, though it's left to the player's imagination just who is depicted there. When you're ready to go on, having turned up as much information as you can from the people around the palace to help you make up your mind, go find Maria up on the topmost pergola of the citadel looking out over the city. Everyone is searching for a reason to live, a reason to fight, to understand better the meaning of death. 
However, that is something we must find on our own and make it our own. That is what my grandfather said, though I don't understand what he meant by it. Plot-wise, this conversation provides the clincher for Faye and his friend's heart to be set on helping Shavat come what may. And at that point, the conflict comes to them. Dominia has infiltrated the city while its defenders philosophized, destroying the great the gate generator and attempting to escape with Saibzen. That proves impossible, fortunately, since Maria joins your party and she wouldn't be able to do much without her gear summoned into battle to deal non-elemental ether damage. You find all this out in the course of winding through some of the more difficult random encounters so far in the game. Along with finding some excellent items and equipment in the maintenance shafts beneath, behind the elevator. Big Joe's there too. I'm thinking about life. So leave me alone. And eventually, beyond the door that even Big Joe couldn't open, your party comes upon the intruder. Dominia explains more of the work Nikolai has been forced to do, fusing the mutated parts of wells and the strength of gears to create the ultimate weapon, not dependent on the reflexes or emotions of a pilot, but a direct neural biological weapon between the human or demi-human and machine by linking them. And Jesse again interrupts before the secret is quite out, dismissing Dominia without a fight for the time being. The final segment of this chapter comes in the gear combat that follows. Somehow, it seems, the Yggdrasil has arrived in Shevat, and with it, the remainder of your party. Apparently, during its docking, Dominia was able to sneak in, so plainly your team will be responsible for fending off the waves of invaders who will try to finish the work she started. You can choose a single gear to cover each of the four gate generators remaining, based on what Sitan can tell you about the kinds of foes headed for each. All these mini-boss battles, of course, only lead up to the showdown between Saibzain and Aktzain, with Nikolai's voice booming from it. Maria, the last line of defense, with everyone else immobilized by the psychojammer uh, pulsing from the red gear, goes out to face what is left of her father. She hesitates until Choo-Choo, at that dangerous age and magically grown to gear size, goes up against Octane, accompanied by that soaring music which really should have been reserved for Maria herself. She pummels the foe, far stronger than expected and earning his grudging respect and ours, if only as a subject worthy of further study only to be blown away by the cannon arm that Octane swings up after a few turns. But as ever, this innocent was superfluous, for Midori arrives on the scene next, calls out telepathically, and confirms that Maria's father is not there in Octane, despite its ventriloquism. His spirit is in Saibzain, and in Maria, of course and it has been all along. The conscience circuit, activated in the course of the battle, transfers his data from the red gear to the blue, 
and with it unseals the graviton cannon at Saibzane's heart. Yet another special options attack with the ear rods and the buntline gun to make your party invincible. Over her filial protestations, it warps and blows away the monstrous fusion of human intelligence and gear body, leaving the pure and courageous one which consists in relationship, not tyranny. Greater wonders yet await. The Omnigear of Rani Fatima, and let's not forget the black boxes in Veltal, besides the anima relic hidden in Shivat. The Yggdrasil flies now, and the limiters restricting your attack points to six are removed, as the limiter keeping her tiny was removed for Chuchu. All of this by Gaspar, one of the three sages, the one who taught Faye's father martial arts. Only Melchior, the one who taught Krellion nanotechnology, remains to be encountered, as Balthazar himself is the third. Whereas the names of the Magi were inserted by the translator into Chrono Trigger, they seem to be present by design in Xenogears. Gaspar hopes to prevent history repeating itself. That emerges in the exchange with Zephyr and Wiseman. But already the Omnigear there has reacted to Ellie's presence. What else? There's a choo-choo reunion party. A wild rumpus. Narration reads, It was natural for them to have a party, and their sweet, dangerous night went on and on, just like a never-ending dream. No, let's not. It's a whole other story. Choo-choo's voice. Faye, where are you going, Choo, without me? Choo-choo will go anywhere, even to the end of the world with you. Choo-choo's maidenly pure heart is only for you. Uh, hmm. We have to take the silly with the profound. Like Tolkien and his elves singing in the woods, or his hobbit translating modern major general poems in the Hall of Fire. And I'm going to be taking some time off from, or at least slowing down, releasing new episodes for this project in order to work on a few other things. Talking about Final Fantasy VI and VII, getting the Signum Academy going again, reading, as always. For more reading this time, The Tower of Babel Story in Genesis is the natural recommendation to go to. But you might also note that versions of this story crop up in all sorts of places. There's the epigraph to C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. That's pretty cool. There's a part of Northrop Fry's address about education, and liberal education. But at the core of a mythology which has something to tell us today, and which we're capable of listening to, there should also be the likes of Toni Morrison. Here, her Nobel Prize acceptance address. The conventional wisdom of the Tower of Babel story is that the collapse was a misfortune, that it was the distraction or the weight of many languages that precipitated the Tower's failed architecture, 
that one monolithic language would have expedited the building and heaven would have been reached. Whose heaven, she wonders, and what kind? Perhaps the achievement of paradise was premature, a little hasty if no one could take the time to understand other languages, other views, other narratives, period. Had they, the heaven they imagined might have been found at their feet. Complicated, demanding, yes, but a view of heaven as life, not heaven as post-life. Thanks for listening.